I want to just paint a picture of the caregiver experience for a hospitalized patient, where oftentimes they might drive into the hospital and dense traffic. It takes them half an hour. They have to park for an absurd amount of money, $50. They have to get lost finding their loved one's bed. They miss the team rounding. Maybe if they're lucky, a medical student will come and see them later in the day to explain what's going on about their loved one. They have to pay too much money in the cafeteria for food that isn't, you know, they're not accustomed to. And then they have to sit in a cramped two-bedded room with someone else across the curtain. And then they have to drive home at night in the dark. And because that person's 80 years old, they really don't like driving home in the dark. And they're exhausted and they don't feel like they actually did that much to support their loved one all day. And I think contrast that with the caregiver experience in the home where the team comes to you. It's on your turf, your terms. And you essentially are calling most of the shots and in charge of the information streams for your loved one while they're at home. That's Dr. David Levine, attending physician and clinical director of research and development for Mass General Brigham Healthcare at Home. Dr. Levine's research centers on advanced home-based care for acutely ill people. This care model gained momentum during the pandemic as COVID-19 admissions surged while others feared infection and avoided hospitals. I'm Luann Heinen, and this is the Business Group on Health podcast, conversations with experts on the most relevant health and well-being issues facing employers. My guest is Dr. David Levine, and we discuss the home hospital movement, how and why acute care is being provided to some patients in their own homes, what we know about the impact on patient experience, clinical outcomes, and cost of care, and why interest in the U.S. is growing. Today's episode is sponsored by Caraloop. Caraloop helps employers drive productivity, reduce absenteeism, and decrease stress and burnout by connecting caregivers with an experienced care coach. Dr. David Levine, thank you for being with us today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for having me. Really excited. Well, three years ago, you published an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine called Hospital-Level Care at Home for Acutely Ill Adults, a Randomized Controlled Trial. Don't give us all the details, but what was the big takeaway? It was a really fun trial, let me tell you. We basically showed that when adults who are acutely ill need hospital-level care, get cared for by a home hospital team instead of in the hospital, they end up doing better. They end up getting readmitted less often. They end up moving more during their admission. And they even end up costing less. I mean, I think it takes a while to get your arms around or your head around acute care at home. So let's start with what it's not. I love talking about what it's not. It's the easiest way to define what it is. Uh, home hospital is not home health. Lots of people often say, oh, that's just home health. But home health is usually two nursing visits a week, physical therapy maybe twice a week or weekly. It's also not home hospice, right? End-of-life care mostly delivered by the family. It's also not home infusion, which is just delivering IV antibiotics. Uh, it's really all of the kinds of care that you'd expect to get in a hospital delivered comprehensively in your home. But not ICU and not surgery. You got it. And those things are changing, though. Uh, we are actually doing post-surgical um, pathways at home now. We are taking care of patients right from the PACU or the post-recovery care unit. 
taking them directly home after their surgery instead of having them stay in the hospital. But our traditional bread and butter, just like you said, is really general internal medicine. That's infections, that's problems with your heart, with your kidneys, with your lungs, uh, with your skin, and a lot of the reasons that end up, unfortunately, lots of folks in the hospital. Tell me what the key elements of hospital home care are besides remote monitoring. Yeah, and, and I would actually say that remote monitoring is not a key element of home hospital care. The core of home hospital care is really, first off, everything centered around the patient, and it's all about good old-fashioned nursing and physician care, just like you'd expect in the hospital. And so our nurses see patients twice a day, at least. Our doctors see patients once a day, either by video or in the home. And then it's wrapping around the other services you'd expect, like IV infusions, advanced respiratory treatments, blood work in the home, imaging in the home. And yeah, you can actually expect to see remote monitoring. That can be continuous monitoring, just like you might have on a cardiac ward, or it can be intermittent monitoring, like taking a blood pressure every few hours. But really the core is at the foundation is the nursing care and the physician care that we see delivered uh, day in and day out. Great. And if there's an in-home emergency, what happens? We have a whole bunch of standard operating procedures to appropriately respond to urgent and emergent situations at home. And so if a patient needs something, they actually at the tap of a tablet or a phone call, or even for some patients tapping a bracelet that we give them, they have immediate phone or video access to their care team. Wow. And that care team can obviously solve a lot of problems by phone or video. But if they can't solve a problem by phone or video at a distance, we actually can deploy a mobile integrated health team, which is a specially trained paramedic to show up to the patient's home within 20 to 30 minutes, and then bring even more advanced team members uh, into the call by video. And so we then have a whole kind of cascade approach to helping patients who might have an urgent or emergent situation. And then if all of those things fail, we are always able to fall back on 911 and the traditional EMS system and then transfer that patient back to the hospital to get an even higher level of care. Let's talk about why it's compelling, starting with the patient experience. Because this idea is getting a lot of traction, and there's something that's working for patients. So true. And I think it really is hitting on the foundation that patient experience is rough in hospitals, and so is caregiver experience in hospitals. We know from data collected on Americans who get care in hospitals, that there's a lot of problems with the care that they receive. Maybe they aren't given the respect that they're due. Maybe the communication isn't appropriate. Paper out just a few days ago, actually, in JAMA Internal Medicine showed that almost none of the things that we expect to happen on the day of discharge from a hospital happen. And all of those things are entirely immutable. We can fix all those problems. And when you change the site of care, it's actually really easy to fix all those problems. It's really easy to sit down with someone at their coffee table or on their sofa in their living room and talk about their medications because their medications are right in front of them. And it's really easy to talk about how to eat appropriately throughout the admission because you're in their kitchen with them and you're looking through their spices with them. 
you can't do those things when you're in the hospital. And so we really feel like the patient is the center of everything because we are a guest in their home. We're really on their turf and on their terms. And that dynamic is just topsy-turvy to what it is in the hospital. And so the patient experience is absolutely number one thing that is changing often for home hospital patients. And you didn't even mention the, you know, lights on 24-7, the <laughs> continuous, you know, being woken up at night every, what, four hours, something like that, the terrible food. You're right. I, I am, I'm so over those things. I didn't even mention them, but you're right. Uh, our patients actually sleep. <laughs> they, they don't get woken up at 4.30 in the morning for a blood draw. Our randomized control trial that you described a bit earlier showed that patients get far fewer blood tests, uh, far fewer imaging studies, and that they're actually able to spend more time sleeping and more time up during the day. Um, and so it, it is a, a night and day, no pun intended, change for patients when they're at home. And there is something really affirming about hearing a physician speak this way to the experience of hospitalization because it doesn't remotely feel human-centric in its design or operation. And in addition to the real loss that you mentioned of autonomy and power. I completely agree with you. And I think we have to look back at the reason why hospitals exist, right? A hundred years ago, no one would have been caught in a hospital who had the ability to pay for other kinds of care. That was not where you wanted to get your care. And we have created essentially an enormous medical, commercial, industrial complex around the hospital. And the reason was not for taking care of the patient. It was for the physicians and the nurses because we could put them in one place and we could put pieces of technology next to them and essentially put all of our patients in, in close proximity to us. And so really the, the construct is very much physician and nurse centered. It's not patient centered when you think of the hospital. Now that we have the right technology as well as sometimes the right mindsets as well as new regulatory opportunities, I think that's what we're going to see catalyzing just an entire sea change in how we take care of acutely ill adults. Well, what about those hospitals and physicians who are pretty well acclimated to working inside bricks and mortar healthcare facilities? How difficult is it to adjust and adapt to driving out to patients' homes or, you know, not having your practice be hospital-centered? I love that question, and I would answer it with the word variable. There are some folks who are always looking to learn and always looking to the next thing to take care of their patients. And those are the folks that are so, so interested in home hospital care and this care model in general. And then there are people who have operated even for 10 years in the hospital setting and just can't fathom it being any different. And that is rough. And that takes a whole lot of change management for those folks. And oftentimes works really well when you sit down with them and you tell them a story about the patient that they let you take home, or you tell them a story about the patient that you weren't able to take home. And really, it's amazing to see the mindset change in many of these physicians and colleagues. And honestly, we've been doing this eight years in Boston now, and there are very, very few people who don't want their patients to go home. And let's talk about cost. It sounds like it should cost less. Cost is a tough nut to crack in healthcare, as you probably know. Most hospitals don't actually know what it costs to take care of their patients. It's really hard to figure that out. 
And so we went to the painstaking trouble in our trial to measure all of the what we call direct costs of care. We added up every bag of fluid, every medication, every hour that a nurse worked, all of the folks in the program to figure out kind of how much does it cost to take care of patients at home versus in the hospital. And you're right, we did show that it cost about 38% relatively less. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is we build enormously expensive hospitals that take a lot to run. We also aren't really good at tailoring those costs to the right patients, right? So tonight in my hospital, no matter who's there, there are going to be a certain number of nurses. And it doesn't matter what those patients need, they're going to be on staff. Whereas taking a home hospital, we have essentially been able to select the right kinds of patients such that we don't need to have dozens of nurses taking care of those patients tonight. We need to have the right kind of monitoring for them. We need to have the right kind of team to respond to them if they need something. But we do see very large cost savings when we're able to right-size the staffing to the patient population. And we'll get to payment models in a minute. Are there any other kind of key benefits we haven't talked about? I think one of the key benefits that we need more data for, but that anecdotally we've seen really big gains is actually in caregiver experience or familial caregiver experience. And this is an interesting area that, again, I think we're always learning more about. But I want to just paint a picture of the caregiver experience for a hospitalized patient, where oftentimes they might drive into the hospital and dense traffic. It takes them half an hour. They have to park for an absurd amount of money, $50. They have to get lost finding their loved one's bed. They miss the team rounding. Maybe if they're lucky, a medical student will come and see them later in the day to explain what's going on about their loved one. They have to pay too much money in the cafeteria for food that isn't, you know, they're not accustomed to. And then they have to sit in a cramped two-bedded room with someone else across the curtain. And then they have to drive home at night in the dark. And because that person's 80 years old, they really don't like driving home in the dark. And they're exhausted and they don't feel like they actually did that much to support their loved one all day. And I think contrast that with the caregiver experience in the home where the team comes to you, it's on your turf, your terms, and you essentially are calling most of the shots and in charge of the information streams for your loved one while they're at home. And depending on the home hospital program taking care of you, there could even be a home health aid in your home to help you with maybe cleaning your loved one or feeding your loved one or staying up all night with your loved one while they need to walk to the bathroom to urinate so that you can get rest. And so I think you know we have just presented some data on caregiver experience for home hospitalized versus traditionally hospitalized patients and have shown that there probably isn't quantitatively by the numbers a big difference in that both have stressors, but both actually do fairly well by the end of the admission. And there's not undue burden being added to caregivers when they're in the home. And instead, anecdotally and qualitatively, we have seen that experience is actually better for many when they're caring for their loved one at home. You know, that reminds me, we didn't talk about social isolation in the hospital, especially if there's not a caregiver able to be present or a family member, Mm -hmm. and especially during COVID. It's a huge issue, huge issue. And and especially during COVID, we saw so much isolation happen. And home hospital is frankly the opposite. 
We take care of a lot of patients who live in multi-generational homes. That is so crucial to their well-being to be surrounded by that multi-generational family. And they get to stay surrounded by them when they're home hospitalized versus taken out of that home, put into a place that may not mirror their culture, may not mirror their language, and uh, is quite difficult for them and uncomfortable. And so we definitely have seen improvements in that. I'll tell you a fun story also that, you know, you could also counter what I said and say, but what if you live alone? Isn't that very isolating to be by yourself while you're sick? Yeah. Potentially it is. And so we actually, thanks to a a home hospital volunteer, uh, launched a remote companion program. And we actually have folks who will video or chat with any of our home hospital patients who might be lonely um, while they're at home. Uh, We've seen phenomenal results from it. Our surveys back have been kind of through the roof with the experience of having that remote companion. Uh, But I think we have uh, tools to ensure either family-centered care uh, because you're at home. And if you may not have a family, we kind of push additional resources to you. I'm speaking with Dr. David Levine, an attending physician and clinical director of research and development for Mass General Brigham Healthcare at Home in Boston. We'll be right back. Caraloop helps families plan for and manage every aspect of their caregiving journey with its comprehensive caregiver support platform. As an employer-sponsored benefit, it pairs caregivers with certified and licensed professional care coaches to guide families through care decisions, provide emotional support, and take the burden of researching resources off their plate. The Care Portal is where collaboration happens between care coaches, the caregivers, and their families, and serves as a centralized place for members to access valuable resources at any time. This benefit helps employees navigate their caregiving journey with less stress and improved overall well-being, while supporting them as they balance their work responsibilities with caring for loved ones. This is the Business Group on Health podcast. I'm talking with Dr. David Levine. In our interview, I asked him to step back and give us an idea of how much the Mass General Brigham's home hospital program has grown. We have grown quite a bit. We started eight years ago taking care of only four patients at a time. We have since grown to take care of about 18 patients at a time now. And there are plans now, thanks to the integration of our service across the entire Mass General Brigham entity, to take care of over 200 patients uh, in the coming years. Right now, typically we will have you know about 15 to 18 patients on service in and around Boston. We take care of you know thousands of patients as a result each year. Really, are able to continue to spread the geographic catchment that we take care of as well thanks to kind of the integration across the Mass General Brigham enterprise. So how does the model work in more rural areas? Obviously, you know, Boston Metro is a huge area, but let's say in Western Mass or where there's long driving distances between homes. Love that question. And I have the exact same question as you. And that's why right now uh, at Ariadne Labs, we are studying rural home hospital. We have a multi-site trial right now uh, funded by the Thompson Family Foundation to essentially test the model in rural America and Canada, because I have always had the same question as you. 
we know this works in urban settings. It's worked in urban settings across the world for decades, but does it work in rural settings? And there's not actually that many examples of rural home hospitals uh, throughout the world. There are a couple. So we really wanted to test that. I, you know, I'm really proud of our rural sites right now. They are um, in the middle of their enrollment. And we really hope to have some phenomenal results by the end of this year to really say whether or not it's a model we should think about in rural America. The possibilities are huge, right? We know that hundreds of rural hospitals across the country have closed. And one of our theories is that potentially where a rural hospital has closed, couldn't you open a home hospital there? right? It would have a different set of services, obviously, and a much smaller footprint. But the potential there, I think, could be enormous for how we re-engineer America's rural healthcare system for acutely ill folks. That's exciting. And broadband internet, is it pretty much caught up? (laughs) It is catching up, I would say. There is an enormous differential in broadband connectivity, depending on what state you live in, and even what valley you live in, unfortunately. And while we are continuing to make gains, thanks to really thoughtful programs from the federal government and state governments, we still definitely see lots of holes. And that is certainly an area that is needing to grow. But I can tell you that part of our rural home hospital strategy is even things like satellite connectivity and mobile broadband satellites that can light up and essentially connect a patient to their team during visits or to transmit vital sign data. Pretty exciting. Sounds like you get to be a technologist too. That is one of the fun parts of my job. Let's talk about patients because I've heard that this care model can disproportionately benefit especially marginalized groups who may not fare as well in a bricks and mortar system. And you've alluded to that. I mean, those who don't speak English, lack trust in healthcare, maybe have a disability where they're more comfortable or they've maximized their home environment. You're absolutely right. And in fact, I I want to talk just briefly about a, a great study from my colleagues at Mount Sinai in New York, where they actually demonstrated that patients who received Medicaid insurance actually ended up going back to the emergency department after their home hospitalization less often than patients on private insurance. That's unheard of. Unfortunately, folks with Medicaid usually end up in the hospital more often. They end up in the emergency department more often. But the opposite seemed to be true for these home hospital patients. That is extremely encouraging data. Again, it's one site. We need to do more studies like that. But it's very, very encouraging data that we are actually able to make really important changes in people's lives during their home hospital stay that probably has some lasting benefit and has real impact on the social determinants of health that may be impacting those patients. And you're right, there's so many opportunities for us to do that when we're in a patient's home, right? We can see that the cupboards are bare. We can see that a window is broken. We can see that a patient who's wheelchair bound can't even roll around on their floor. It's so broken. And I can tell you, we have an enormous responsibility and an enormous opportunity when we're in patients' homes to act on the things that we see, to set people up with different food resources, to go knock on the superintendent's door of the building and say, you better get up here right now, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that that is part of the special sauce of home hospital care. And those things are usually 
not visible to us in a hospital. We are blind to them. Even if we screen for them, even if we ask about them, it's very, very hard to act on them in the same way. Is it true that patients who may lack financial security or housing security or food security, the kinds of patients we're talking about who could disproportionately benefit, may be the ones who refuse this type of care. They'd rather be in the hospital. Is that true? As far as I know from the literature, that's not true. Uh, We've done several studies, as have folks um, at Sinai and elsewhere, who have looked at reasons to decline home hospital care. Mm -hmm. And so we've done both qualitative and quantitative analyses of this, and we have not found any sort of sociodemographic characteristic that predisposes you to say no to home hospital right now. We looked at sex, we looked at race and ethnicity, we looked at a whole set of different variables um, and could not ascertain that there was something that was essentially associated with that kind of a response. We did see a potential trend toward um, whether or not you had a caregiver in your home. And I think that is one of the reasons that our program and many, many programs across the country offer a home health aid in your home to help with some of those functional needs that you may not be able to do when you're acutely ill. To my knowledge uh, right now, we don't see a disparity in who is um, refusing or who is accepting of home hospital care, but it's something that we look at very consistently to make sure that we're able to provide that level of care. What is the acceptance rate? It's quite variable, but in general, in our program, it hovers around 70% and can go all the way up to 90% um, and can even dip a little lower. We uh, have seen kind of changes in the acceptance rates over time, and I think a lot of that is all about the socialization of home hospital. And when I talk acceptance rate, I also talk about the physician acceptance rate as well. Mm -hmm. Many times we may propose a case to a physician and say, hey, we'd really like to take that patient home. We think they meet criteria. And the physician may disagree with us or the specialist may disagree with us is often the case. And so I'm counting those in that percentage as well. But it's, you know, upwards in the 70 to 80% range of acceptance. What kinds of partnerships with community health workers or other resources in the community are available to support hospital at home? Every home hospital program has to establish a whole set of partnerships that they may not already have as a hospital. And this really depends on what sort of partnerships already exist with your hospital. But obviously, you need nurses in the home, you need paramedics in the home, you need physical and occupational and speech therapists in the home. You need to be able to deliver food to the home. You need to be able to deliver medical equipment to the home and imaging equipment to the home. You may be able to insource a lot of those things. You may also have to find partners in your community who are able to do those things. Every hospital is different. For example, we partner with an amazing organization in Boston to help Uh, provide our food for patients who may need food while home hospitalized. And every single institution needs to kind of find where they're going to insource and where they're going to outsource those different vendor needs. Tell me nationally how the program is growing. And we know that there was renewed interest in the during COVID when hospital surges made inpatient beds less available, people very afraid of going to the hospital. So that contributed to the momentum. What else? Well, I have to tell you, 
in November of 2020, it was a dream come true when CMS announced the waiver. Uh, we were extremely excited. Lots of folks have been working on this for, honestly, decades. And COVID was a turning point for, for home hospital and really enabled the country to start to embrace the care model because it gave it a regulatory and payment pathway. And a lot of that, like you said, was spurred on because of capacity constraints. There's just simply were not enough beds to take care of patients. And I also think a lot of it was spurred on because we wanted to find a better way to take care of of our patients. And fortunately, CMS answered that call. Then Congress answered that call just recently in December of 2022 when they essentially passed the Hospital Modernization Services Act. We now have an enormous, enormous amount of interest in this model. There's over 260 hospitals who have been granted waivers. That number just continues to climb every single month. And we're seeing the benefits, I think, to almost entering into the early adopter phase of the diffusion of this model throughout the country, such that I really do think that if we can continue this momentum, we will see thousands of uh, hospitals providing this kind of care. So let's talk now about the payment model. Um, My understanding is that CMS, the CMS waiver, calls for hospitals to be reimbursed at the same rate when their home hospitals as brick and mortar hospitals receive. You got it. Right. So the DRG payment is the same and facility fees are included and are paid to hospital at home. You got it. It's a one-to-one payment. If you are going to get paid $5,000 to take care of a patient with pneumonia in your hospital, if you do that instead in the patient's home, you'll get paid that same $5,000. Shouldn't that at least the facility fee accrue to the homeowner? And also, doesn't it appear that um, the 38% drop in costs that you experienced in your research study should accrue someplace? (laughs) Where should that go? It's a great question. It's a really great question, and, and it's an open policy question. There's a few reasons or a few ways to think about this. One, to my understanding, places like Australia and Spain also started out in a very similar way. The single payer there, the government, essentially said, we'll pay you the same rate. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, into the expansion of the model, they said, oh, we're going to extract a discount on the rate now when you do it at home. I think from a policy standpoint, that was brilliant because it allows your country to build the infrastructure for this. It's very expensive to launch a home hospital program. It's kind of like launching a new service line, right? If a hospital wants to decide to open a cancer center, it's very expensive for them to do that. And this is like launching a whole new service line for many hospitals because they are not tuned right now to deliver care at home. And so I think there's one argument that says in order for our country to build this infrastructure there needs to be a little bit of a good deal for for the hospital in order to do that, in order to recoup all the costs of of that delivery. While you're building the infrastructure, is the data being collected that would ultimately inform a better payment model? It is. And that's, I think, what is really exciting is that part of the CMS waiver is actually mandatory reporting at the patient level, which is pretty phenomenal. Again, you know, I'm a researcher and I do a lot of health services work. And so that part's very exciting to me is that every single home hospital program in the country, every single month, and some of them weekly, have to report on every patient that was home hospitalized, on some of their safety data, 
and whether or not they ended up going back to the hospital, for example. This is really, really exciting because CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, will have all of these data, will be able to merge those data with claims, and potentially would be able to make those data public even, just like they make other claims data public in a de-identified manner, so that not only could they do analyses on that, but other researchers could do analyses on those in order to inform future payment models, which I don't think will necessarily look the way that it looks today. It may look very different. Suffice it to say, the one-to-one payment during the pandemic, when this waiver was put together in a matter of weeks, was the right thing to do. It, It was able to essentially get a care model to thousands of Americans very, very fast in a safe way um, as quickly as possible. What would you say to large self-insured employers who want to see care delivered in the most optimal setting, maximizing quality, minimizing harm, and certainly reducing unsafe and unnecessary care? What can they expect from this? I'm always really excited to talk to self-insured employers or self-insured entities about home hospital because they have the ultimate flexibility. They don't need to wait for regulations. They don't need to wait for rules. They just need to wait for evidence. And we have the evidence uh, for the most part to deploy this kind of a care model. And for the most part, self-insured folks really just need to create a critical mass, right? You, You need to be able to have enough patients that are requiring hospital-level care in order to stand up a model like this. So maybe your company already staffs its own urgent care on top of its own primary care. Well, if you're big enough, or if you can band together with enough folks and get big enough, maybe you can staff your own home hospital too, and you can provide really high-quality, safe, less expensive care and not even need to involve the traditional hospital potentially. Outside the U.S., as you said, this approach has been scaled by a national health system who, you know, fund and support infrastructure and the growth of the programs. And so here in the U.S., there is a lot of interest right now on the part of um, large health systems, home health agencies, maybe some of the tech providers, venture capital, private equity. What do you make of that? I think for better or worse, I, I make of that that it is America and our sometimes insane healthcare system. We have people coming from all parts to try to hopefully make things better. Uh, we, we know that it doesn't always turn out that way, uh, but I am all for multiple actors in this space trying to figure this out to get it to as many patients as possible. And so whether that means it comes from venture capital, whether that means it comes from philanthropic institutions, whether it means it comes from academic medical centers, from critical access hospitals, from the government itself, as long as we're staying true to the evidence-based model, which is not always the case, but as long as we're staying true to the evidence-based model, I think this is better for patients in the long run. Is there a story you could tell us about a particular patient you recall that kind of epitomizes the hospital at home experience? Yeah, I'm happy to share a story. I think we have so many, it's it's hard to pick, honestly. But it was one of the first patients I actually ever treated in home hospital, we'll call him Will. And he ended up coming in, couldn't figure out what was wrong with him initially in the emergency department. And we ended up having a guess, at least, at it. And he ended up going home. 
it was part of the the very initial time when we were randomizing patients. So he ended up getting chosen to go home. We were treating him with some IV antibiotics, and his wife was so happy <laughs> that he was home uh, because she was not able to get to the hospital to be with him due to some uh, you know limitations in, in her mobility. He was able to be at home with her. It turned out the first night that he was home, he ended up getting very feverish and needed to call me. I was helping take care of him. He was able to kind of describe the problem, but we ended up needing to visit his home, ended up being able to change his, his antibiotics, able to kind of collect all the kind of necessary blood work that, that he needed. He was able to recover phenomenally the next morning and called me that morning right before I was about to touch base with him and said, you know, Doc, I ended up sleeping all night. And he was just amazed by it because he had had so many hospital experiences where he never got to sleep and was always just so tired uh, by, the, by the time he was discharged. And so he really ran our team through many of the backup systems that we had put in place for him. <laughs> Fortunately, successfully got much better and was able to um, heal kind of throughout the entire stay in his home with his wife and his dog, which was very meaningful to him. He just thought it was a night and day experience. So one of your first five-star reviews. It's true. Well, thank you so much for your time today, for sharing all that you've shared. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. David Levine, an expert on how acute care can be delivered in the home and its benefits to appropriately selected patients. Home Hospital gives patients more autonomy and power in healthcare decision making and offers a unique opportunity to understand and address social determinants of health. Dr. Levine was featured in a January 2023 New York Times Magazine article, Your Next Hospital Bed Might Be at Home. Follow David on Twitter. He's at David Levine, MD. On behalf of the podcast team, I'd like to acknowledge the contributions of Dr. Chrisanne Timpy Dupuy, a practicing hospitalist and medical director of the Health Partners Hospital at Home in Minneapolis. I'm Luann Heinen, and this podcast is produced by Business Group on Health with Connected Social Media. If you liked the conversation, please rate us and leave a review. 